Father, we acknowledge uh, that you are God. You're holy, um, not like us. You're perfect. You're the creator and the sustainer of all things. So our breath, our hearts beating, this moment, uh, it's all a gift from you. You're sustaining us. You're keeping the world, uh, this, this earth on its rotation, its revolution around the sun. And uh, yeah, you, you are in control and you are good. We pray for uh, this time gathered together today. Um, we ask that you would soften our hearts, help us to see you, Jesus, and to respond appropriately, um, and help us to uh, take next steps as you, as you lead us to. Um, pray for the kids downstairs who are... Uh, um, being ministered to, being led into worship by the teachers. I pray they'd have a lot of fun here. I pray for uh, them to make friendships with adults, friendships with their peers, uh, friendships with kids older and younger than them, um, and ultimately uh, that their relationships would uh, be bonded um, by you, Jesus. And that any kids who who don't know you, um, anyone here who doesn't know you, God, I pray they'd feel uh, welcomed and invited into not just repentance and faith once, but repentance and faith, confidence in you as, uh, as a lifestyle, their, their whole life. Um, be found in you, Jesus. We believe you can do that. We believe you have and are doing that. Um, so help us now. Uh, to hear from you and to put your words into practice. Amen. So we've been walking through Matthew's gospel since the start of February, and uh, I want to start just kind of with an overview because it's one of those things, especially now that we're in the Sermon on the Mount, like it's easy to kind of forget chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, because um, that was, you know, months ago. Um, and, and this single word of fulfillment, that single word is kind of a synopsis of Matthew's emphasis, that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of God's purposes. Jesus is the fulfillment of all of God's promises. So in chapter one, uh, Matthew started out, he thought an attention grabber was, hey, let's go through the genealogy f from Abraham. <laughs> it's like, that'll get their attention. And for a Jewish audience, it really would. Abraham was their father as a Jews. And David was their king. And, and Matthew highlights Abraham and David, and then he highlights the exile, which is kind of where the Old Testament left off. And then uh, he ends chapter one with Jesus the Messiah as God with us, the fulfillment of that promise. There will be a child, Emmanuel, God with us. So that's chapter one in a nutshell. Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham, to David, and even God's promise 
to restore his people out of exile. Chapter 2, you might be familiar with the story of the Magi coming to visit the Messiah child. Um, But often it's easy to forget that Matthew tells the story of the Magi by weaving Old Testament fulfillment, weaving Old Testament scriptures throughout that have been fulfilled. So all the events surrounding the Magi, Matthew is pointing to Jesus is fulfilling what the Old Testament talked about. And then in chapter 3, you have John the Baptist appear on the scene, and Matthew introduces him by saying, John the Baptist is a fulfillment of Scripture. In preparing the way for Jesus, John fulfills the scripture, that there would be one that goes ahead of him to prepare the way before him. And, and then Jesus gets baptized by John. And we see this word uh, fulfill again. Jesus said, I must be baptized to fulfill all righteousness. Um, chapter four, Jesus in the desert, being tempted in the wilderness. Um, and it kind of harkens back memories, especially in the Jewish mind, harkens back to Israel and Moses in the wilderness. And they were found not faithful in the wilderness. Um, But uh, Jesus was faithful in his wilderness temptation. And then the end of chapter 4, Matthew shows uh, uh, Jesus, the context of Jesus' ministry. And he quotes Isaiah. I mean, he, he just can't get over the fulfillment language of how Jesus uh, is the fulfillment of this story, that the, the big story that God's been telling. So if all that's true, if, and it is, but if Jesus is the point of all that God's done throughout history, and if all of the world, if all of creation exists for him, uh, here, here's a huge application for all of us. We should expect to find our true and our lasting fulfillment in him. Uh, Which means, practically, you can change diapers to the glory of God. You can build spreadsheets and business systems in worship of Jesus. You can teach a classroom, if you're a teacher, or even on a Sunday morning, as if Jesus was your boss. He was the one giving your evaluation. Paul wrote in Colossians 3, whatever you do as an electrician, as an engineer, as a student, do it all to the glory of God because you know that it's Christ that you're serving. And so Matthew shows Jesus to be the fulfillment and uh, we should know that. We should live accordingly in our lives as well. And, and one way that we would do that, uh, it, as we, it, if we move towards that, one way we, we do that is to just listen to him and do what he says, which is the whole point of this Sermon on the Mount that we are slowly tracking through. Uh, so, so far on the Sermon on the Mount, uh, we've covered the Beatitudes, and then that part where Jesus called his disciples last week, you're the salt of the earth, you're the light of the world. Um, and that's, I, I would summarize all of that in saying, uh, or that Jesus is saying, we need to embrace our blessedness, the fact that we are blessed in the kingdom. Uh, we need to realize how well off we are because Jesus is our king. So today we're going to continue the Sermon on the Mount, looking at verses uh, 17 through 20. And uh, 
I really think this passage is an incredibly important passage in in this uh, sermon, but also if you want to understand like the continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament, you just got to grapple with this passage because Jesus addresses it directly. So here we go. Jesus continues and he says, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Remember that word? Okay. You remember it, right? Okay. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth. Until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of the pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same, will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. So uh, you probably picked up on this, but when Jesus... um, gets to this point in his sermon, uh, he is correcting what would be a misperception of what he'd been saying so far. He'd been saying, you're blessed because I'm your king. You're blessed because you're in the kingdom. He's talking to his disciples. But if they're thinking, oh, Jesus is doing something totally new. This kingdom is totally new. uh, Jesus is saying, no, it's not. It's actually quite old. And that old stuff is not going away. It's being fulfilled right now. And so, because the old stuff isn't going away, what should we do with it? What what should we do with the commands? And Jesus continues in that thought process and says, well, if you break these commands, and if you teach others to do the same, you're not kicked out of the kingdom. You're just the least in the kingdom. What he says, and if you practice and teach them, you're great in the. You will be called great in the kingdom. Then he says, but unless your righteousness surpasses that of the very best people of their day and age, the scribes, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, you won't even enter the kingdom. So, uh, we'll unpack that a little bit more. But Jesus. Fulfilling the law means that he actually did it. He, in, he fulfilled the law as it was intended to be fulfilled. Never did away with it. He fulfilled it. So, uh, so just think about this. As you're reading your New Testament, you know, over the course of your life, and you see Jesus heal a leper, raise a dead person, um, I hope you remember from your Old Testament reading that those are unclean people. And Jesus is fulfilling, he's fulfilling the law. So he's not transgressing when he heals the leper, when he raises the dead. He's showing that uh, the law is meant to keep us away for our benefit, but his righteousness surpasses that of that law. So Jesus is very interested in righteousness. He says, you must have a a kind of right life that's above the very best people of the day. And then, even if you're in, 
you, you've, you've got to have the kind of right life to where you, you not only practice it, but you teach others to do the same. And so I, I want to spend some time on what righteousness is, because when we hear righteousness, uh, we as Protestants, we tend to think imputed righteousness. It's righteousness having to do nothing with our obedience. Uh, so imputed righteousness is like a change in your relationship status. You went from guilty to innocent, from wrong with God and wrong standing to right standing. And uh, imputed righteousness says God can't love you any more or any less. When God looks at you, instead of seeing how good or how bad really we are, he sees Jesus' righteousness covering us. And, and Jesus, I believe that's what he's referring to when he says, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Meaning, don't compare yourself to other people, but let your standard of righteousness be Jesus' righteousness. That's the only way that anyone enters the kingdom. But when Jesus is talking about uh, being least and greatest, uh, when he's talking about practicing these laws and teaching others to do the same, uh, Jesus is talking about what I would call ingrained righteousness, which means your love for God, it can be more or less. God's love for you is unchanging. Um, it's perfect, but our love back towards God uh, is not perfect, and it is changing for, for more or for less. So here, here's a picture of uh, something that's been ingrained to kind of help us grasp this point. Um, that's my dog, Cora. And if you can tell on the, uh, on the other picture to the right, uh, there's green grass and then there's spots of not green grass where Cora spins and spins and spins and spins until there is nothing but dirt. And uh, she is ingraining with each step and with each spin, she's ingraining her paws into that ground. Uh, it's kind of evidence that Cora treads here, you know, that she lives here. Um, and, and that's what I mean by ingrained righteousness. Like, uh, you, you're having the righteousness of Jesus worked into you through lots of little steps over time. Um, that, that becomes like who you are. That becomes your response. And I think that's what Paul is talking about in Romans 13 when he says to believers, clothe yourselves with Christ. Well, if you're already clothed with Christ, imputed, what's he talking about? He's, he's talking about taking on the character of Jesus in our lives. And this is a process, but we really should experience progress over time in that because God is all for us progressing in this process. And so to kind of give an illustration of uh, how these two imputed and ingrained righteousness work together, uh, here's another kind of picture. Uh, if someone gave you a billion dollars, signed it over to you in a check, but for some reason you couldn't cash that check, you couldn't deposit that check, you know, it's just like you had the check and you called yourself a billionaire, but you didn't actually have access to a billion dollars. Um, that's like imputed righteousness without ingrained righteousness. Biblically, it just doesn't make sense. Um, and fortunately, God does not do that to us. When, when we have 
the assigned or imputed righteousness of Christ, he also gives us access to his power. Meaning, Jesus' death on the cross didn't just put us in right standing with God. I mean, we could celebrate that. If, if that's all that it did, we, we, we should celebrate that for the rest of our lives and all eternity. But there's actually more. Um, he wants you to be the right kind of person. He doesn't just pardon everything and say, all right, you just keep doing you. He's got a greater goodness for us than we have for ourselves. And so we can know him. There, there's really nothing holding us back from experiencing him that his power cannot and would not overcome. So again, remember Jesus' intent in the whole sermon is that we would become the type of people who hear these words and put them into practice. And the gospel says that because of Jesus' life and death and resurrection, we actually can. Death did not defeat him. That's the good news of Easter. And we actually can, over time and incrementally, live out of his power, his resurrection power. Paul says it's alive in us. That's the power that's available to us. And so if you're thinking, well, uh, I don't think perfection is possible, I agree with you. It's not. We're not talking about perfection but direction. Imputed righteousness is perfection that's Jesus's, that he assigns to us, but direction, man, that's, that's available to us. We, we can choose the direction of our lives. And imputed righteousness, here, here's my point. Imputed righteousness leads to ingrained righteousness, biblically. We have to do something with it. And, and let's go back to the, the thing that he said about the Pharisees. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, then uh, you're certain, you certainly won't enter the kingdom of heaven. And just put yourself in the position of his audience when they heard that. And if it helps you, you know, like think of a pastor or like the most spiritual people that you know, just so you can like picture the Pharisees in that tier of, you know, spiritual leadership or whatever, because they were the top dogs of spiritual leadership in that day. And then think, wait, if, if he said that they're not getting in, like that we have to be better than them, then who, who could get in? That, that's got to be what they're thinking. But then, wait, wait, wait. He also said that we could get in even if we break all these rules. The Pharisees don't break all these rules. And we'd still be in. How could our righteousness exceed it? It's because, it's because we have to understand imputed righteousness and ingrained righteousness. And Jesus is implying that it's possible, it's, get this, it's possible for us to not only be in, but to be in and be great. It's possible for us to do it. So again, imputed righteousness, it leads to ingrained righteousness. So one more, one more illustration to try to make this clear and compelling. Um, because like we talked about before, Jesus' way, his kingdom, it really is the good life. Not the easy life, but the good life. 
Um, here, here's the other picture. These are, these are pictures of Saddam Hussein's palaces. Just a few, actually. He had multiple palaces that he lived in. I mean, it's hard to fathom. The indoor swimming pools, you know, the who knows how many bedrooms and all of that. But that's, that's where he lived until this is where he lived in his last days, which I call that the messy spider hole because it's really a shack with a spider hole out back for when, you know, like someone who's going to come get him, uh, he, he needs to go hide. Um, Saddam Hussein literally had a whole kingdom, palaces where he could live in, but he was found living in a spider hole. And I believe you can live in the kingdom of God in a spider hole, but you don't have to. Let me be clear. When I say you can live in the kingdom of God in a spider hole, I'm saying you can take the, the gift that Jesus paid for, the gift of imputed righteousness, and, and you know, kind of choose to live however you want. Um, I honestly don't know what will happen to you on Judgment Day. Uh, I'm just worried about you today um, because it's not a good way to live. Um, why, why do that? Why choose to live that way? You don't have to. And you might think, gosh, it's, it's just a lot of work, Ben, to learn how to live from Jesus. It's, it's, it's work to ingrain righteousness. Like, that takes a lot of spinning to, like, you know, ingrain my paws into that dirt and kind of make my, I don't know if Cora likes the dirt, but I sure don't like it. Um, but ingrained righteousness takes work. And we're all going to work on something. I mean, we're all going to put in effort in our lives. It's just a matter of direction. What direction do you really want to live? And what, imputed, what the imputed righteousness of Christ should do to us is soften our hearts and say, Jesus, if you care about me that much, then even if it's hard, even if it doesn't make sense to me, I mean, J Jesus is all for your questions if things don't make sense. And I want our community to be embracing of, of questions. So feel free. But, but just look at the evidence in the gospel of, of how much he cares for our well-being. And the imputed righteousness should lead to our commitment to ingrain his righteousness in our lives. And, and maybe you're here today and you're thinking, Ben, you know, I've tried to do that whole Bible reading thing. I've tried this and that and these small groups and I just feel like nothing's really worked. Um, it's part of the process, honestly. Uh, I, I, I know of no one who hasn't failed in some sense in the ingrained righteousness process other than Jesus. Uh, he, he never failed. Everyone else has. It's not about winning. It's about training. It's about changing incrementally. So, I just want you to, I invite you to throw that excuse out that, you know, like, well, this hasn't worked. Um, and, and I want to invite all of us, because we're all kind of in different stages and different places in our lives where, you know, like Mark's quiet time looked different than my quiet time. And, you know, like his sphere of influence, the people that God's placed around him, they're different than, than mine. And so he, he should relate to those people, um, 
differently than I relate to my people. Like we, we should be following the same Lord, but uh, we have different contexts. So, so here's, here's, the, here's the question we can all ask. The real issue for all of us is what do you know? Where are you now? Like what do you know to do in your discipleship to Jesus? And I think that this, that part of the beauty of this church-wide challenge to me is like uh, we can all move towards that. If, if you've not had a quiet time before, then you're like, well, I know I should be getting time alone with Jesus. Once a, once a week, it would be progress for me. Or if you're at five days a week, shoot to six or seven. Or if you're at, you know, like five minutes a day, say, well, maybe I could make room for 10 minutes a day. Um, but it's, it's really just about consistent training. And then the other piece of it is who are you learning to ingrain Jesus's righteousness alongside of, because none of this is meant to be done individually. So, you know, who are you surrounding yourself with? Who are you encouraging? Um, because it's, it's hard. Uh, it makes sense to, you know, look at Jesus's life, death, and resurrection and say, yes, I should listen to him when he tells us how to live. He, he has something very important to say, uh, but we all lose perspective. We all leak vision and perspective. And so I just want to encourage you, whatever it is that's keeping you from ingraining his righteousness into your life, uh, don't ignore it. Deal with it and include other people. There's just too much at stake. Your life matters too much. Uh, you are given Jesus' righteousness. He's, he's imputed it to you if you're a believer. And if you're not, it, you can today receive that gift of his perfect righteousness by repenting and believing, trusting him as your king. But he's given us this righteousness to actually do something with it. So uh, before we pray, I'm just going to read this passage one more time and let Jesus have the last word uh, this morning. He, this is what he said. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of the pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Still in, but called least. Whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. So as we pray now, if, if, if you don't have relationship with Jesus, um, I would encourage you to choose to ask Jesus, show me your goodness. Show me how good it is to know you. And uh, watch. I, just ask Jesus. Uh, and talk to someone, especially if he starts convincing you of his goodness. Um, and then a, as you pray, uh, if you're in the kingdom, if you know you're standing, you've received this gift of imputed righteousness, resolve to not live in a dump.
to not live in a messy spider hole uh, and ask for clear, specific ways to train (laughs) to ingrain his righteousness in your life. So, some time to pray now. Jesus, thank you for loving us, being so committed uh, to us for our good that, uh, that you did take our place and you did take our punishment and you have given us the status of children who are innocent and blameless before you, um, dearly loved and cherished. And thank you for not stopping there Uh, but out of love calling us to what is good even when it's hard and when it uh, feels bad. Um, We we pray that uh, we would not obey you for the greatness that's promised, but we would see you as great and therefore obey you. 